it's not unusual for us to hear news reports on medical breakthroughs, especially, for example, in the treatment of cancer. Well, many of these dramatic stories come from laboratory findings, animal studies, or small studies involving humans. So how do we know which of these new treatments really work? The use of randomized controlled clinical trials has become very important in fields like cancer research and many others. I'm Bob Long. We welcome you to another edition of Stats and Stories, where we'll look at the stories behind the statistics and the statistics behind the stories. And today we're discussing the issue, how do I know this medicine works? Joining me for our discussion are regular panelists, Miami University Statistics Department Chair John Baylor, Media Journalism and Film Chair Richard Campbell. We'll get to our special guest in just a moment, but first we ask Stats and Stories reporter Lucy Borchers to help us understand the complexities of developing new medicines in America. We often hear about new medicines to help us deal with a variety of diseases and ailments like cancer, heart disease, HIV, or depression. What most of us don't realize is the length of time it takes to research, test, and obtain approvals of medicines we take. Steve George is a biostatistics professor at Duke University School of Medicine. He's been involved in cancer research for more than two decades. George has seen great progress in discovering safe and effective therapies through clinical trials, which can take 10 years to complete. Clinical trials are the best tool for obtaining reliable data on whether a drug is safe and will produce the results it's designed to achieve. Historically, George says clinical trials have been used to determine if one medication is better than another for broad groups of people battling a certain disease. More recently, George has seen a shift towards targeting therapies in a more personalized way. Not all patients respond alike. The question is, why is that? Can we identify um, factors that would be predictive of success for a particular therapy? Know that ahead of time, we can target those patients for specific therapies. It's an appealing concept. It's still uh, elusive in practice because of the complexity of the disease and all the many factors that go into that. Companies seeking approval of new medicines must gain approval from the Food and Drug Administration. Lisa Lavange is Director of Biostatistics in the FDA Center for Drug Evaluation and Research. She says experiments with new drugs start with animal testing, then move into an initial clinical trial for humans. That's followed by studies to determine the optimum dosage in the population best suited for medications. Lavange says in the final stage before approval, companies must do two clinical trials that are randomized and well-controlled. They have a number of aspects that make them well-controlled. If possible, uh, the trials are what we call blinded or masked so that neither the patient nor the physician enrolling and treating the patient or anyone involved in the study knows which uh, treatment the patient is on. Lissa Lavange says her counterparts in the FDA's Medical Review Office consider safety issues for a new drug. Before approving a new drug, she says the FDA must assess benefits versus risks. So what we want to know at the time of approval is that the benefits outweigh any risk involved with the drug. It's hard to say there's no there's no risk whatsoever with a drug. There's always risks that are with drugs, but we have to make an assessment that the benefit that the drug affords to the patient outweighs the risk. And then if there's a serious risk with the drug, it may result in non-approval. Duke professor Steve George says one important step in assessing risk is having an independent data monitoring committee get involved since it has no stake in the outcome. It is certainly true that these therapies for any disease can have... Uh, adverse effects and sometimes fairly serious adverse effects. It's a difficult matter to weight that relative to the potential benefit of the therapy. 
Both Steve George and Lisa Lavange say clinical trials are the cornerstone of new drug development. Lavange says FDA also assists with developing labels that help medical professionals explain to patients what effects the new drug will have. For Stats and Stories, I'm Lucy Borchers. Our special guest today, and we welcome Marie Davidian, William Neal Reynolds Professor of Statistics at North Carolina State University, also a past president of the American Statistical Association, and her expertise involves applying statistical methods to challenges in the whole field of health science research. So I mentioned clinical trials, which are a big part of what we hear about today, and I just wanted to have you talk about your involvement in this field from the statistical point of view. Okay, thanks, Bob. Thanks for inviting me. Um, the controlled clinical trial is probably the, I think you could call it the bedrock of the evaluation of new treatments. Um, it's the gold standard by which the Food and Drug Administration, which is the regulatory body in our country, evaluates and approves products for um, distribution in the marketplace. I've been involved in um, health sciences research in a variety of disease areas, um, HIV infection, cardiovascular disease research, cancer, for over 20 years. And I've participated in the design and analysis of these studies um, through my involvement and collaboration with those scientists. John Baylor, go to you for the next question. Well, you know, there's a lot of vocabulary that comes up, and you, you talk about design and analysis mm -hmm. and trial. I mean, there's there's a technical meaning here that that pro that maybe is confusing when people hear it. So, what, why is it called a trial? And when you say it's design, what are some of the aspects of design that you've helped with? Okay, I think it's I think it's called a trial because it's um, in some cases the first time a treatment is evaluated in the sense that it's being compared against maybe the current standard of care or against um, nothing in the case where there isn't a current standard. So what would be called a placebo. So um, a clinical trial is actually a very um, precise experiment to gain appropriate evidence to determine whether or not evidence exists, in fact, to um, say that there is a real difference. We've been doing clinical trials of medicine for, for decades, but I just wanted to get your feel on how rapidly things are changing today, because it just seems like <laughs> that things have really exploded in this whole field. Okay, indeed. Um, the, the, the control clinical trial, I think, has, since the early 1960s, when legislation in Congress was enacted to require uh, substantial evidence from well-controlled studies, mm -hmm. the Food and Drug Administration has um, required that such studies be conducted by what are called sponsors, pharmaceutical companies, and these days by tech companies. Um, what we're seeing now more recently over the past decade in particular with the advent of the Human Genome Project is the desire to modify and expand trials to, say, incorporate genomic information, for example, on individual patients that could be used to, in fact, guide their treatment. So rather than just looking very um, broadly at is treatment A um, better than treatment B in a very broad sense, trying to develop new sorts of strategies for conducting these studies to bring the genomic information in and try to more target the treatment to the patient. Richard Campbell. I know that some of your, uh, your work involves uh, personalized medicine, and I'd like you to talk a little bit about the sort of gray area between coming up with data that's meaningful and also the sort of subjective part of making decisions about 
uh, your what you what your medical requirements might be. Okay. Well, um, in a clinical trial, we try to be as objective as possible. So, in fact, the basic setup is patients are randomly assigned to receive one treatment or the other so that there will be no unconscious or conscious bias. For example, that one treatment gets assigned preferentially to, say, the sicker patients, which would make it for an unfair comparison. Um, so in the, the realm of personalized medicine, um, what we would like to do ideally is develop sort of objective evidence-based say, rules, if you will, for dictating which treatments ought to be given to which patients based on their personal characteristics. Now, of course, the way clinicians practice medicine, they make decisions like this all the time. They take as input, if you will, the information on a patient, synthesize it, and make a treatment decision among the available options which one should be given to this patient. Now, obviously, that involves a certain amount of subjectivity as well. Um, so I think the, the challenge is um, clinicians need to use their clinical judgment and their experience. At the same time, there's a desire for uh, uh, ways of uh, giving people treatment that are objectively based on evidence. And so the challenge is how do you integrate those two perspectives? And so that's where we sort of stand right now. You know, some people might wonder, why do random assignments? What's, what's ah. the value of doing a random assignment? I mean, maybe if you have knowledge, shouldn't that make it better? What, what, what's accomplished by doing this? Okay, well, um, we're in the business here in a clinical trial of trying to learn which of, say, two treatments is better. Better in what sense? Better perhaps on average if it were given to the entire population of patients. Now, if patients and clinicians were to choose their own treatments, for example, a clinician might have a preconceived notion that perhaps the new treatment is uh, more likely to benefit patients who are sicker, and so might tend to give that treatment to those sicker patients. You can, you can think about that. That would allow for an unfair comparison because sicker patients are being assigned the new treatment at, in greater numbers. And that could very possibly make that new treatment look worse than it actually would be if it were to be given to all the patients in the population without regard to their health status. You're listening to Stats and Stories, where we're looking at the question, how do I know this medicine works? I'm Bob Long. Our two Stats and Stories panelists are Miami University Statistics Department Chair John Baylor and Media Journalism and Film Chair Richard Campbell. And our special guest today, Marie Davidian, the past president of the American Statistical Association. She's also the William Neal Reynolds Professor of Statistics at North Carolina State University. And her expertise involves the challenges we face in whole, the whole area of health science research. We also wanted to find out what people out there know about our topics. So our Stats and Stories reporters ask them the question, how long do you think it takes to develop a new drug or a new form of medical treatment today? I would have to say seven to ten years, and that's probably because they have to go through not only proposing it, but then actually going through the study and finding the answers, and then they actually have to get approved by different federal companies. I would say you'd have to have years of studying and testing and approval. I would say 10 plus years because you have to go through everything from the beginning to the end and really do the case studies and make sure the case studies are in larger amounts of people versus a smaller group so you know that it's been tested on a wide range of people with 
diseases or whatever they're looking for. My guess would be that it would probably take uh, around 10 years. 20 years. 20 years. Marie? I guess that's a great question to ask you based on the answers we've heard. How long do you think it, uh, or how long does it actually take uh, to develop a new drug or treatment today? Okay, well, um, the answers you see out there vary, but I think it's pretty much accepted that um, from conception at the very earliest stages in the laboratory, through the entire process of testing and evaluation to approval for the marketplace by the Food and Drug Administration on average takes about perhaps 10 to 12 years. Okay. And, and how many drugs would make it through from, how many start at that, that very first part and then make it to the end? I, I think the statistic is something on the order of, of 5,000 that enter into early testing. Maybe one eventually is approved. So what are some of the phases of, of this approval process? This is certainly a staged exercise. Mm -hmm. So you're, you're probably demonstrating that something has the potential to be useful. So what are some of the studies that are conducted in the, along this, this path? Okay, well, let me just start off with the very early studies. Um, this is before a potential treatment is even given to, say, animals or eventually humans. Um, the early stages involve laboratory experiments, for example, going through vast numbers of chemical compounds, in the case of drugs, looking for particular compounds that might exhibit certain kinds of biological activity that might be thought to be associated with various aspects of the physiology of the disease in, in, under study. So those studies will take place very early and do involve statisticians who help to design them. Um, after that, when a, a chemical entity is identified as potentially promising, then there will be additional laboratory studies and eventually animal studies to look at things like, can this chemical compound actually be introduced and absorbed into the system? Forget if it does anything, <laughs> simply can, can we even get it in there? And then furthermore, is it safe? Are there adverse effects that possibly result from administering it? So those animal studies take place very early before even the, um, the, the FDA is really involved heavily. Richard Campbell, go to you for the next question. Marie, I wanted to ask you about at the sort of back end of all of this, when you finish the study and, it's, and it's, uh, you're in the position where this gets transmitted to the general public, and it's often the job of the journalist to do that. Could you talk a little bit about what journalists do well and not so well when they're interpreting uh, the work of statisticians? Hmm. Oh, that's a loaded question. <laughs> um, no, I, I actually, I think I've actually been very impressed with, with um, particularly in the past several years, with the reporting of statistical information in the media by by journalists. It's difficult to understand much of it because, for example. Uh, a natural thing for a member of the public to ask is how can you look at a, a drug in maybe a thousand people and actually conclude that that drug is better than, say, what's currently available? And that requires understanding of basic statistical principles such as um, taking a sample from a population, the sample being sufficiently large that you have enough confidence in the resulting evidence from the study to conclude that 
you can never be totally certain. That's what we statisticians are all mm -hmm. about. But that you actually can conclude with a high degree of confidence that the result is something real and not just something spurious. Okay. I was going to ask two uh, specific things that I notice and I work with our journalism students are things like what we sometimes call false balance, where uh, you, in journalism you're asked to go out and tell two sides of a story. Well, sometimes there aren't two sides. And, and mm -hmm. sometimes uh, I notice journalists sometimes have trouble distinguishing uh, correlation from causality. Mm -hmm. So maybe you could speak to, to to those issues. If if I can talk a little bit about the the false balance thing, has to do a lot with like climate change. We've talked about that on this program, where you know you if you if get somebody that has done research on climate change, you're supposed to go out and get an equal number of folks who <laughs> will dismiss it, and that's a that's actually an example of false balance. I see. I, I think in, in, in this realm, the issue of correlation versus causation yeah. that you brought up is, is a key maybe – I don't know if false balance is quite what I'd call it. But it's, yes. it's, it's, a, it's a, a bit uh, controversial in terms of just understanding what's out, what the evidence is out there. So, for example, um, let me hark back maybe 10 years. The, the um, uh, hormone replacement therapy had been highly touted for women, postmenopausal women. Um, to be very beneficial. And that, that conclusion was based on many studies, which what, are what we call, statisticians call observational studies. These are studies where all you really do is observe which treatments were given to which patients over time. So for example, some women got hormone therapy, some didn't. And as a result of those observational data, it was concluded that hormone replacement therapy was beneficial. Later on, a clinical trial, randomized clinical trial was conducted, the Women's Health Initiative. And as it turned out, so women were randomized to receive hormone replacement therapy or to receive a placebo, so an inactive substance that looked like hormone replacement therapy. And as it turned out, the study was stopped early because there were so many cases of adverse effects like breast cancer and so on. Mm -hmm. Well, this is correlation versus causation in action. As I said earlier, um, a randomized study allows for an unbiased evaluation of the two things being tested. So in, in another way of looking at that is it allows you to feel comfortable in inferring causation. The observational studies, on the other hand, where patients and clinicians were choosing their own treatments, that could have been done preferentially. And while we do have statistical methods to attempt to sort of disentangle that, you can never be certain that you've actually done that. So as a result, the correlation, say, between hormone replacement therapy and beneficial health outcomes that was observed can never really for certain be attributed to the hormone replacement mm -hmm. therapy. I'd like to revisit you know, uh, a word that you've used a couple of times, and that's that design thing. And I think randomization is one aspect of, of, of a design. Other things that we've, we talk about in other contexts are replication and mm -hmm. control, and even the generalizability of the population under study for for a target population of interest. If you were involved in helping someone design an experiment to evaluate a new drug or a new treatment, mm -hmm. what are some of the, the decisions that you would have to help them to make? As a statistician. As a statistician. Okay, well, um, and I will just add that having a statistician involved at the very earliest 
stage of the design is very important because we can contribute to it in the ways I'll discuss. So first of all, we, we have to understand the subject matter and discuss it with our subject matter uh, collaborators to even try to understand what, what is the comparison of, of interest that makes the most sense. So if there's a new treatment, to what should it even be compared? Um, that's more of a, a subject realm issue, but it's one that we have to understand and we all have to agree on. But once we've established that, then the issue becomes, okay, um, what would be a meaningful difference to a clinician in terms of if, if I could make the average outcome, um, maybe average survival time increase by X number of months, that would really be an important breakthrough. So I have to understand by talking to my subject matter colleagues, what would be an important difference to even detect? Then we have to decide, well, how many patients would we need to involve in the study to gather enough evidence to feel confident that we were able to detect such a difference if it in fact exists? So these are all considerations we have to take into account when we design one of these studies. This is Stats and Stories. I'm Bob Long. Our question today is, how do I know the medicine works? Miami University Statistics Department Chair John Baylor and Media Journalism Film Chair Richard Campbell are here asking questions of our special guest, Marie Davidian. She's the William Neal Reynolds Professor of Statistics at North Carolina State University, and her expertise involves challenges in health science research. We wanted to also know how much people know about today's topic, so our Stats and Stories reporters Ask them, how much money do you think it costs to bring a new drug to market today? Three million dollars. I've seen different things between, especially if it's about cancer, it's probably going to be more than that. But in the millions or billions, I've seen numbers like that, but I've never actually done any studying on the topic. So I would say millions of dollars just because if you think about the time that the researchers are putting into it, all the people that they're paying to to develop those and do the testings, I mean, it would definitely add up over the years. I'm going to say with this tens and say 10 million plus to do all the testing, to look at the drugs, test more side effects, see if there's anything that comes with that. I would assume like millions to like create it and bring it to like market. I know that it probably cost a million dollars to develop the, one of the drugs that I'm on because I know it's expensive right now. And I know part of that's recouping the cost of the development of the drug. Marie, I did want to ask you that question because I think people would be really curious just how much money is involved uh, in, in this realm. Well, again, I believe um, the estimates vary, but I think for a pharmaceutical product, so a chemical entity from, produced by a, a pharmaceutical company, the estimates range from maybe $800 million to a billion dollars. And that wow. brings up another question. <laughs> that brings up a question I have, which uh, because I used to teach a course in in writing for advertising, and, and one of the things my students were always curious about is why we do so much pharmaceutical advert. I think the United States, as I remember, is one of only two nations. I think New Zealand is the other that allow mm -hmm. drug advertisements. And so I think sometimes when people see all these new medications out there, and then they hear at the end of the ad. The, what the side effects are, they sometimes <laughs> wonder, <laughs> I could die from this, or it could cause cancer, which is what I'm trying to prevent. So it's it's kind of curious uh, when we hear all these. Ads. So I'm just kind of curious about 
Uh, is that part of the reason we do this because of the cost to bring this to market? So they also have to get the word out there to uh, to people to try it. Then once once they actually bring it, or once the FDA approves it, certainly I think that that's part of the motivation. I mean, uh, re- recouping those research and, and development costs um, is, is is obviously something a company wants to do, needs to do. Um, I, I think there's some debate about how we go about doing this, and I don't think we want to get into that here. But um, indeed, it's, it's, it's a very expensive process. Right. Um, conducting a major clinical study, a major clinical trial, costs millions and millions of, you know, tens of hundreds of millions of dollars. It, these are very, very complicated studies. Yeah. John? So I, I'm curious, given what you know about clinical trials and the work that you've done, how has this changed your behavior as a patient? <laughs> <laughs> That's a great question. <laughs> well, I, I guess, um, you know, when, when I visit my clinician for my yearly physical, or maybe not quite yearly, <laughs> um, <laughs> sorry, um, you know, I, I tend to ask him questions um, that sort of come out of, of my experience in, in dealing with clinicians and my deal, dealing with, you know, data and so on. I ask him about recent things in the medical literature that might be relevant to some ailment I'm experiencing or whatever. I think it's made me a little more, um, I guess, aware of what resources and evidence might be out there as a result of these studies and gives me... Um, the inspiration to ask more questions of my clinician. Richard? I'd, I'd like to shift gear here a little bit and talk. Uh, John's brought a number of, uh, of guests on uh, on the program, uh, women, women st- statisticians. And in journalism, we're, in terms of our majors here, for instance, we're, it's, it's, uh, we have a lot of women students, probably 75% to 25%. And I'm and I would I would guess that this has changed in your time as a as an academic statistician. Could you talk a little bit about uh, opportunities for women statisticians and how much change you've seen uh, over time and what what's facilitated that change? Certainly, uh, when when I went to graduate school in statistics at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill in 1982, there was one female faculty member. She had just joined the department, and she stayed for maybe five years and left. Um, I was one of two female graduate students. Um, So we were definitely (laughs) in the minority. Over the years, I think, as with many disciplines, um, more opportunities for women have come about. One particular area of statistics where I've seen an a, a huge amount of, of um, women entering the field is in the health sciences, mm-hmm. what we call biostatistics. Um, there are departments of statistics and departments of biostatistics at universities, and departments of biostatistics focus specifically on training for entering health sciences research and applications. Maybe it's because, I, I don't know, maybe women gravitate more toward that, but we've seen an enormous increase in the number of females entering those graduate programs. Today, for example, in my department, North Carolina State, we're a very large department, so we have both a biostatistics group as well as statisticians engaged in other areas of application. About 55% of our 
graduate population, graduate student population is female. And at least a third of our faculty, in fact, my department head is mm -hmm. female. So I've just seen an, an, an increase in uh, more theory-oriented departments. I've seen less of that. Mm -hmm. um, in the faculty ranks, at the se more senior levels, women are not as highly represented, I think mainly because of my experience as a graduate student at that yes. time. But um, at the lower um, ranks, the assistant and associate professors, women are definitely um, very well represented among our faculty. So I think we're one field where, we, where there are lots of opportunities for women. John Baylor got time for one final question today from Marie. Well, to follow up on sort of the, the future and the, moving into careers in this, if, if someone was interested in doing what you do, what kind of things should they be studying as an undergraduate? Uh, so statistics is an interesting field. Um, there's a famous statistician named John Tukey, who's long since passed away, but who was at Princeton, who once said, um, the great thing about being a statistician is you get to play in everybody else's backyard. <laughs> so the, 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 the exciting thing about statistics is we get to learn a lot about other sciences, and we need to do that in order to be effective collaborators. But at the same time, statistics is grounded in mathematics. We are not mathematicians per se, but we use mathematics heavily in our work. So a student thinking about going to graduate school in statistics um, or entering the field even as an undergraduate um, would want to get a very good training in basic mathematics, calculus, um, course called linear algebra, certainly probability. Um, for entering graduate school in a PhD or master's program, that would be the minimum requirements. At the same time, learning something about various sciences, for example, biology, genetics, if you're interested in health sciences research, would certainly be important as well. So getting a sort of a well-rounded training, but definitely having the mathematics background. Marie Davidian, we want to thank you very much for sharing your expertise with us today on Stats and Stories. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Marie. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us on our program, you can send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu. Be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we'll talk about the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. <laughs> <laughs>